Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. This podcast is about theater. Back on July 28, 2015, I sat down with Bill English, Artistic Director of San Francisco Playhouse, one of the mid-sized regional theaters in the Bay Area, We sat down for a wide-ranging discussion, which I edited and cut down to just under a half hour for airing on KPFA's Arts Waves program. But the conversation itself came to three-quarters of an hour and dealt with a lot of topics that didn't wind up in the final edit. My guest is Bill English, the Artistic Director of San Francisco Playhouse, sfplayhouse.org. It's on Post Street. We'll be talking about last season, all of the shows, and the upcoming season, and we'll be talking about some trends in the theater business that I've been asking various people about. Let's start first by talking about the current play company, which is running through September 12th. Is that correct? That's correct. Company is the great Stephen Sondheim show that uh, your wife, Susie Damilano, directed. I understand that she wanted to try to make it sort of gay or bisexual, and they turned her down. What's the story behind that? Originally, it was sort of both of our impulses to sort of see if we could bring company more up to date and sort of also plumb some sort of essences that many, many, many people besides me feel is in the story. Is Bobby indeterminate about about whether he wants to get married or what kind of person he'd like to get married to? And so we wanted to kind of loosen it up and maybe have a gay couple or two so that we'd have some more diversity in that way that would maybe better represent our current demographic. And we applied to the people who control the rights to company and were resoundingly refused. There was a scene that was written later. It was written for the Donmar Warehouse production, but also it was done at the... um, production, the Neil Patrick Harris version that they did as concert version, and also the version that Rolla Sparza was in, the John Doyle version where they played instruments. This scene is a scene where Peter, who is part of the couple that's getting divorced, he kind of makes a pass at Bobby on the balcony. And this scene was actually in an edition that I owned and was performed in all three of these productions. But Since George Firth passed away, his people refused to allow that scene to be a part of the show and wanted it to return to its original form. Marry Me a Little actually was put into the show later. It wasn't originally in the show, but it was okayed by Sondheim and Firth and everybody, so there really wasn't any issue about that. Well, that's on the uh, Raul Esparza recording. Correct. It seemed to me that updating the show doesn't really work because the attitudes about marriage and relationships have changed in the 40 years since the show was originally on. And in addition, there's a scene, a pot smoking scene 
And that one is very 1970s, even use of the word square. (laughs) (laughs) So I I just wonder, when you were doing this, did either of you kind of go, you know, it would be nice to make it a period piece? Were you thinking that? No. No? We wanted to make it more universal. We wanted to make it sort of kind of timeless. I'm not sure I agree with you that relationships have changed all that much in 40 years. I addressed the idea in my program note that the question now may be a little bit more philosophical or a little bit more metaphysical question. In 1970, the question would be, how can a man who's 35 not be married? There must be something wrong with him. Whereas in 2015, the question is, is marriage an outdated institution? Who should really be married? I mean, women don't need men anymore to procreate or to make a living. And so the questions of why a man would get married are different now, you know? There's also a point where Joanne, who is somewhat older, um, the Elaine Stritch role originally, where she makes a comment about her older husband dancing And now we see older people dancing all the time because they've been dancing since they were in their 20s. I think think you're right about both those observations. Both of them sort of – the dialogue itself sort of harkens back to the 70s. But I do think we – by costuming it in contemporary dress and by sort of staging it in a contemporary world, I think we succeeded to some degree in making it feel a little more timeless. Well, it helped – from the 2006 show that they updated the orchestrations and the orchestrations on the double pianos, of course, don't sound 1970 at right. all. Because yeah. the pianos, let's face it, are timeless. They don't date it so clearly as some of the instrumentation in the original orchestration would have. You got lucky on the uh, lead. Oh, Keith is fantastic. Yeah, he's great. He, he was our, our baker last year in Into the Woods. So we got to know him and Thought he would be just the right Bobby. And side by side by side, the dancing was right on target. And I understand that the cast really worked hard at that. I got that from a cast member. Uh huh. Well, I think they did. I think they got a lot. There was a lot of drill involved. Every night every before, day. <laughs> before the show. Every day, every night, yes. Now that you've done Into the Woods and, um, and Company, are you looking at other Sondheim shows for the future? Oh, sure. I mean, a a musical by Sondheim is always an option. I have a a personal kind of desire someday to do Follies. And I also am a big fan of Sunday in the Park with George. The two later shows, Roadshow and Passion, are not the Mm -hmm. equal of the earlier shows. Well, there are a lot of very passionate fans of Passion. It has quite a following. I have some people who are really staunch supporters of the Playhouse who would support a production of Passion. There was recently uh, a small, intimate production in New York right. that, that worked. Right. Yeah. That was, I think it came from London. It was produced in London and then brought over to the Queen Anne's Warehouse as a part of that tradition for a short run. Yeah. <laughs> One of the friends who is a big supporter of our musicals saw it in London and has been squawking to me about it ever since. We may end up doing passion someday. Let's move on to a few questions that I have about the state of theater. When I go to most of these theater companies, I see a crowd that veers toward the older. 
at some places, veered toward the very old. SF Playhouse does not veer toward the very old. There's a younger, somewhat younger crowd coming in. And part of that is because of your Rising Star program, right? Well, the Rising Star program definitely pulls our averages down. But I'd say even without the teenagers, our average age is at least 10 to 12 years younger than any other theater company in the Bay Area. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we do programming that is designed to appeal to a younger audience. We don't do quite so many classics, although we do the musicals. We tend to do world premieres, and I tend to look for themes and plays which I feel address the moment in which we live, which address the questions we're asking about how do we fit in to the scheme of things on a global or a local or a celestial level? You know, where do we fit? And I think kids really are asking all those questions. I say kids, meaning people under 50. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know I think that that has helped. You know, I think that making our programming very, you know, idea-driven or very contemporary-driven. One element of bringing in younger people, I was talking to Carrie Perloff a couple of years ago and asked her why plays did not have intermissions, and she said it was societal ADD. <laughs> what, why? I mean, you've noticed that too. Fewer plays have intermissions, sure. and they're shorter now. Sure. We tend to have more of the long one act. I think it's a great form. You know, I think when you were doing an opera— or a very, very big play with a 25-member cast by O'Neill. You know, the, they needed to, they were telling bigger stories. I think the playwrights today tend to be focusing on a simpler story with a strong impact, like ideation, for instance. I don't know why that would have needed to have an intermission. That's not a one-act because we're saying, oh, my God, our public has ADD and they won't be able to handle an intermission. It was just that the ideas and the themes expressed in that play lent themselves to that length. Well, you also need to have a way to end an act and start the next one. That's another challenge, too. I would definitely agree with you because our, our, our bartenders complain about it, is that I have tended to pick a majority of plays that are one-acts. Next year, I think, actually, the majority are two-act plays. Last season, before this one, we're just ending now. However, we did um, Jerusalem, which was over three hours. And we got a great audience for that. That sold out almost every show, and it drew a young audience. The other part of theater, it's not something that you would necessarily do, but I'd like your comment on it, are these ideas of interactive-ish theater, like something like Sleep No More in New York, where you have elements of plays and people move around. Berkeley Rep is going to be doing one this year. What do you think of those, and why do you think those draw a younger audience? I don't know whether I think it's really theater. It's an experience, right? It's like a guided experience. Like Sleep No More is great. I really, really enjoyed it. And the design was phenomenal, you know, in terms of the decor and the. they had a whole floor that was Burnham wood and they had a whole other floor that was clawfoot bathtubs filled with blood. It was wonderful. But I wasn't following a cohesive narrative, a story. I guess I applaud all of the innovation that, people want to do. It's not, I'm not sure it's my thing. 
like the progressive theater where you go from room to room. I think it's great that there's a variety of things that people can do. I noticed that The Sandbox, your new play series, has three plays next year. Yes, it's expanded. It's been drawing a bigger audience. We now have over 500 subscribers for The Sandbox series. We've kind of uh, also kind of gotten it down in a way, you know, to where it's become more of a routine, which isn't so kind of crazed. (laughs) And um, we've also been able to raise some more funds for it. We got our first NEA grant that was specifically for the sandbox. And we've some people within our, our donor circles have stepped up and decided to become executive producers of the sandbox season and a, and a seasoned producer of the sandbox. So it's, it's gotten more funding. That's a different theater, right? When we first started it, we were up at our Sutter Street address, and we had two theaters in that building. We had a 100-seat theater and a 50-seat theater where the sandbox was born for the first three or four years. And then once we moved down to Post Street, we had this big, magnificent theater, but we we didn't have that second venue. So the Sandbox has been a nomad for a couple of years, and next year it's actually going to be in three different venues. And one is going to be at the first one, uh, one two three, that opens in August, is going to be at our our old theater, which is now called the Tides Theater. And then the second one is going to be at the new um, Strand Theater at the upstairs space that they call the roof. The black box. Yeah, which is a great space. And I'm super excited to work in there. And then the third one is going to be at what used to be the Zeum Theater down by the carousel at Yerba Buena that is um, now called the Children's Creativity Museum Theater. And it's also a very nice theater, very well equipped. One of the plays next season, Colossal, is part of something called the New Play Network. What is that? And how is SF Playhouse affiliated with that? Well, are we're, you? we're a member. It's called the National New Play Network, the NNPN, and it's a fabulous organization. We've done, I think we've done four or five of them. They, they do what they call rolling world premieres. So they get three theaters to agree to do the play separate productions, separate directors, separate cities, and then they actually fund each of the three Rolling World premieres, which is wonderful. And the the greatest thing about it is that in a brand new play, lots of times after the first go-round, they may not get a great review, and they're dead. Well, this way, a play is guaranteed three tries, and the playwright has a chance to work on it and tinker with it until it gets resolved. Um, Our first NNPN was a play called Grounded that we did in our sandbox, and it was a huge success for us. But it went on to have two more legs. The writer kept working about on it. I think there ended up being about five productions of it in the country before it ended up finally at the public theater in a production directed by Julie Taymor. Was Bauer part of any of that, or was that just coming out of you guys? Bauer was a commission of ours that we developed on our own and then, you know, performed in our theater and then eventually took to New York to the 5090s, 59, where it had a very successful run. Is there any other shows that started in San Francisco and wound up in New York? Well, long ago, about five years ago, we did a play called Abraham Lincoln's Big Gay Dance Party that we took to the New York Fringe, and it was a big hit at the Fringe, and then it also developed 
because of its success at the Fringe, it developed an off-Broadway run, which was not our production. And then the same writer, Aaron Loeb, who wrote Ideation. Now, Ideation developed as a sandbox play first and then moved to the main stage. And next March, we're moving it to New York, our own production, to the same theater, to the 5090s 59 Theater. A good theater. Yeah, it's great. It's a 200-seat theater, beautiful theater. Let's talk a little about last season before we go on to the next one. The last time I interviewed you was around the time of Into the Woods, which I thought was a great production, straightforward production of the show. I noticed that great care was taken to make sure every line was clear. Mm -hmm. And I noticed the same thing about company. Uh, When I listened to the recordings of company, it's hard to make out all the words in not getting married, which is the fast patter oh, yeah. song. But it seemed like Susie slowed it down a little so that we could actually hear the words. I'm not sure we slowed it down, maybe a tiny bit. I think that she was just a maniac about diction. She and Dave Dabrowski, both, just hounding the cast constantly about final consonants, you know, and that's really what helps with diction. And they all really just took to it. And I think, yeah, I think it's probably one of the most audible and laudable, laudably audible (laughs) productions of company ever. Promises, promises. Uh, I had mixed feelings about the show, Mm -hmm. one of which I'm not going to air, which was that I thought that the casting of Sheldrake was wrong. Uh Uh-huh. He was too young. Oh, yeah? Yeah. If you look at the original at, at the apartment, McMurray is in his 50s and McLean is like 22. And here... She's older and he's younger. You you miss the age gap. Well, I just guess I don't know whether I really agree with you that the age gap is the critical factor. I mean, Johnny is in his early 40s and Monique is 25. So that's a fair amount of age gap. Yeah, but he doesn't look at... He looks like he's 40. No? no okay. No, not Okay, so let's assume he's 35, right? Yeah. And she's 25. And he's got a family and kids. Why do you think it's age? It's more class and... And position. I, I think it's age just mm-hmm. from having seen McMurray and watching that relationship. To me, the show Promises, Promises is always going to be problematic. Uh-huh. It's not a perfect show. Uh, uh, mainly because no matter how good the uh, main character is, the apartment only worked because of Lemon. Because Lemon pulled something off that I think is virtually impossible to pull off which is to make the guy a lovable sleazebag. Uh-huh. And I think that there's a tendency to make him either a sleazebag or lovable rather than a distinctly jack. I think it may have been Lemon's best performance. It was great. I don't know whether he might have gotten an Oscar for it. He didn't win an Oscar for that, but uh-huh. they won, uh, it won Best, best picture. picture, yeah. And Billy Wilder won for Best Director. It seemed to me that the other problem with the show is that by the time of the late 60s, when the show came, society had changed sufficiently between 1960 to sort of render a lot of it dated for that time period. And there's nothing you can do about that. You know, I kind of tried to pose it as madmen with songs. These people, because they were a part of the business, which was much slower to catch on than Berkeley you know, New York business world, that there still was this. And and of course, Promises, Promises, we did very much as a period piece. Right. Everything about it was was in period. And 
in detail as much as we as much as we could do. But I understand what you're saying. I guess we were trying to make it be about that world that's that was certainly still like that in 1967. You know, my feeling about the show was we have a chance to see a not very successful period piece uh-huh. in a good production. And there's a reason why Promises, Promises is rarely revived. Well, you know, it was successful in its time. It ran over a thousand performances. Then. <laughs> and then and then there was a revival of it a couple of years ago. It ran for like well, it was Sean seven, Hayes, eight months. Yeah. It was Sean Hayes and Chenoweth, which Yeah, is I wasn't cast. crazy about the production. It felt like they were just hurrying through it. All the tempos were rushed. And she wasn't really right for that part. She was just kind of so perky. I was definitely not trying to emulate that production, more trying to emulate the original production. And Chuck, our guy, I think he's a tremendous performer. Actually, I was working less with sleazeball than clueless and just sort of uh, victimized by the American dream to the degree that this was just what he was taught, that you made your way to the top by whatever you had to do. And in business, there really are no ethics or morals. And if you got to do, you got to do these things in order to move up the chain of command. And so he's a little more clueless and eventually getting clued in to that there are things more important in life. I had an idea when I first started out on it to have him strip off his suit and have like a tie-dyed T-shirt underneath and sandals and kind of walk off into the hippie sunset. But when we when we tried it, it just didn't work. You know, I was trying to make a nod to the times, to the fact of your comment that it would have been nice somehow to incorporate something of the the San Francisco 60s in it. But you're right. It just isn't there. It just isn't there. To try to make him more of a naive character, it's actually in the play, uh-huh. but not in the film, because in the film, he's already got the apartment. The apartment is already set up and has been going for some time, whereas in the play... We he, introduce we the introduce idea. it. Yeah, so by introducing yeah. the idea... It changes who he is. He's a different character in Promises, Promises than he is in The Apartment. He's a more naive kind of well-meaning klutz than the sort of slightly slime element that Jack Clement, of course, skated the edge of so brilliantly. Uh, the other thing is they, they bring in the character <laughs> of the doctor, who's a much more important character in the, in the play than in the film. And I think a fun addition. Great addition, and he the was, performer was the, terrific. Ray is such a jewel, such a, a Bay Area legend. It was glorious to give to have him in that part. I mean, he literally got a laugh on every line. Oh, he was terrific. And it, 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 the doctor is one of the places where you see the the, the Neil Simonization of the of the story because the one liners are just. Uh, exquisite. Something Billy Wilder would never do. Right? No. <laughs> well, one thing it made me do was go out and rent uh, the apartment and watch all the yeah. documentaries on it. And one of the, the critics is... said this. Another critic said the same thing. It made me want to go watch the apartment. And boy, you know, the apartment is an absolutely stunningly it great is. movie. Absolutely great movie. Stupid effing bird. Did you have any issues with putting that on? Were there anything that you found that was particularly interesting about this take on Chekhov? It was a challenge, and it was just mainly fun. The play is basically the seagull. There's virtually no difference in plot or character development at all. 
and it's just been told in a contemporary language and added this sort of breaking the fourth wall. So those are the two elements that were added to it. But it was fun for me as a producer. My take on the play was I didn't want to make a big deal out of announcing to the public that it was an update of The Seagull. I just felt people would be drawn by the title. And then, of course, those of us who are familiar with Chekhov would go, oh, my God, this is The Seagull, and get a kick out of it. And the people who didn't could appreciate it on its own as a story which could take place in today's world. So that's the line I was trying to walk with it, and I think I think it succeeded. Trouble Cometh. Was that a world premiere? Or? It was. It was a world premiere, and it uh, it's a play that we'd been working with for three or four years, actually. We did a reading of it with um, the, the, the director who ended up directing it and the playwright present in New York at the Lark Play Development Center, and then we thought we were going to produce it, and we ended up losing that right out to a much more prominent theater, regional theater, that controlled it for a couple of years. And actually, our director, Maya Dralis, got separated from the project at that point, and then said big theater, did workshops and workshops, and then never produced. So eventually, it came back to us with May and with Rick, and it was just a wonderful experience working with Richard Dresser, who is just an amazing wonderful guy and was out for all the rehearsals and we had a blast let's talk about the next season dogfight it's a musical based on a 1991 river phoenix film about three marines during the vietnam war era who decide to go out on a date by finding the ugliest woman they could find and for some reason, it became a musical. It was produced at Second Stage Off-Broadway in 2012. What prompted you to bring it to San Francisco? Well, it's a San Francisco story. It takes place in San Francisco. I liked the movie and was excited to find out that a musical was being made of it. I think it works really well as a musical. It's an edgy, kind of a tough little story. I like that it takes a look at male chauvinism of our culture then and, you know, probably to some degree still now, and how young men navigate that landscape when they've been brought up. This tradition goes back generations of Marines that have this this dogfight send. They're about to get shipped off to Vietnam to be shot full of holes. And it, I, I kind of look at it as part of the dehumanizing process that was part of that culture that they objectify women, it's part of on the way to turning themselves into people who can kill others. That was my take on it. The music is by Pasek and Paul, who are just the most exciting young theater composers in the U.S. right now. And the score is just amazing. It's written for a, a, a four-piece rock ensemble plus violin and cello. So it's a six-piece band, and it's just a glorious score. It's a tough little score, too. It's rock and roll, and it's it's in your face. So it's not like a florid Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of sound. And yet these guys write really, really great tunes. It's great. And the, the characterizations are interesting. The uh, review from, I think it was Isherwood, the review said that there was a slight problem in tone in the New York production in terms of balancing the hard-edged nature of the story with sweetness. Uh, how are you guys going to approach that? Well, I agree with him. Uh, I definitely want to give it a harder edge in terms of the, how we attack the music. 
You know, the second stage production was very much aimed at Broadway, and choices were made in terms of casting and in terms of style. It was just a little bit. It was a little bit Broadway kind of poo poopy doo in terms of the way they attacked the big numbers. And um, we're going to definitely try to make it edgier. There was a production in London that was much more successful that was much tougher. And I've actually talked to the director and the producer of that production to get a few tips from them. You're directing that one. I am, yeah. Yeah. Stage Kiss by Sarah Rule comes out of the Guthrie and Playwrights Horizon. And it's a uh, romance farce set between two actors who are in a revival of a 30s play together, and they had a previous relationship, right? Yeah. Well, it's Sarah Rule. You know, it's a play within a play within a play. And it's about this woman who's been an actress and kind of dropped out of the game to have a child, and his said child is entering her early teens, and so... The actress is ready to go back to work, but her one of her big problems has always been that she has a tendency to fall in love with whoever is her leading man. And in fact, she gets thrown back into a play with a production with a guy she already had had an affair with. So it's a complex little story, but it's a lot of fun. And um, written with Sarah Rule's kind of natural edge, you know, her stuff has always got that kind of glint of satire and just commentary on the oddness of the theater world. How'd you manage to snag it? Applied for the rights, you know. I think, you know, if Berkeley Rep had wanted to do it, they certainly would have got the rights ahead of me. We did one Sarah Rule play before. We did Dead Man's Cell Phone and had a, just a total blast with it. It was a big hit for us. So I'm a huge Sarah Rule fan. I think she's one of the most original and exciting voices in American theater. How'd you find out about it? Um, I read it long before it was at Playwrights Horizons. I read a copy of it when it was being done at the Goodman in Chicago, which is where the first production was. And actually, I wasn't sure I liked it all that much. And my associate artistic director, Jordan, uh, Puckett had actually seen it there, and she liked it very much. So we kind of followed its development, actually applied for the rights long ago, were denied, you know, and then the Playwrights Foundation production went up, which I actually saw, mm. applied for the rights again, were denied. And then, I don't know, six months, eight months later, the the, the rights were suddenly available and we snatched it. Does that happen often where you apply for something, it disappears, and then you keep going, I'm going to try to get this? Oh, it happens all the time. It's part of the process. Yeah. It happened with Jerusalem. It happened with Dogfight. I couldn't get the rights for quite a while. It happened with Trouble Cometh, where we lost it and then got it back. You know, it's the size of theater that we are. We're kind of in the middle. We're bigger than a lot of the little bitty ones, but there's the big guys above us who just are going to always have more clout. What about those the musicals like Company, uh, Promises, Promises, and Into the Woods? Well, those are classics. They're never really that hard to get the rights to, or we haven't found that to be the case. So it's basically with, with these smaller plays. That yeah, are... the newer stuff that's fresh that's fresh out of an off-Broadway production or a Broadway production. Then the, the agents that represent the, the playwrights are trying to get the playwright the best deal so that they can make the most money since the playwrights are paid on a percentage of your average weekly box office. The agent is more likely to go for a deal with ACT than San Francisco Playhouse 
all other things being equal. The Nether by Jennifer Haley, you're directing that one, is a uh, virtual reality thriller. And that one comes from MCC New York and originally, I guess, from L.A. Yeah, it was first production was in L.A., which is when I found out about it. And, of course, couldn't get the rights. And <laughs> then it went to MCC and then it actually went to London. It was at the Royal Court in London. And I am nuts about the play. I just think it's it fulfills everything that I want to do in terms of speaking to contemporary trends and contemporary developments in terms of how much we are spending our, our lives online, how that trend is going to continue. What's it about? Well, it's about a newly created uh, police force that is trying to execute some control over morality in the virtual world in which people are spending many, many, many more hours of their day. And so they are brought a guy in uh, who they suspect of running a child porn ring in this nether. And the problem is he's a very, very, very smart fellow and he's buried the, his servers in the Mariana Trench somewhere and they can't get any evidence on him. And the children aren't real anyway. No, there's no real children involved, which is what he says. He says, well, look, I'm sick. Would you rather have me on the streets going after your children or in this world where I'm not dealing with anyone but adults and everybody is carefully screened and I'm not actually harming anyone? Well, the detective begs to differ with him because he's, she says he's ruining lives and people are giving up their careers and their families and their fortunes and plunging headlong into these incredibly seductive, addictive worlds. So it's an interesting debate, which I think the playwright doesn't give you an easy answer to. Do we have the right to legislate morality in a situation like that? So in order to get evidence on him, she goes into this virtual world as a male avatar. How do you pull that off then? You have another character, you have another actor playing her. That's correct. Her. That's correct. So there's an actor playing her in in the virtual world. And the subject of the investigation plays himself. And then there is another character who is playing one of the virtual characters in that other world that she finds out who it really is and brings him in for questioning to try and get evidence on the ringleader. It's a thriller. It's a detective story, but set in such a unique futuristic society that it really just hit the bullseye for me. And it'll be fun to produce because we'll have to create some pretty exciting virtual world in addition to the nuts and bolts you know, interrogation room from which it all springs. When you're working on multiple plays in a season directing, uh, how do you go from one to the other? Is that a problem? When you're working on Dogfight, you're also beginning to work on, on the nether. Yeah, I'm just meeting with a set designer uh, tomorrow to just talk about what the set's going to become. You know, I'm also designing the set for Colossal and meeting with the director and casting and I've actually cast a little bit of the summer show and have started working on the set for that. A lot of the planning is casting. Most of the next season is already cast because the talent pool just isn't huge. And so if we want to get great actors, we have to get out there early to yeah. compete. Tony Tacconi talked a little about that, that the difficulty is the further out you go, 
the more you're locking in somebody two or three years down the road and the less they want to be locked in. Well, they may quit, too. You, yeah. you can't make them. You can cast, we cast an actor a year ago for Trouble Cometh. And then six months before the show, they get a better offer and they just leave. So it's it's always a it's a gamble and a balancing act between how far you cast out and who you cast that far ahead of time because you can always lose them. Bill English, Colossal by Andrew Hinderaker from Dallas Theater. This is New Play Network, and it's about football injuries being gay what's it about well it's about a lot of things it's a play about a young man who is uh, the son of a a great modern dancer who runs a great modern dance school and is grooming the son to become the next great modern dancer and the son is also at the same time being bullied at school and kicks a couple of the jocks in the head and jumps up on some high wall where they can't reach him and they go, dude, you ought to join the football team because you're obviously very athletic. And so he does. And uh, the father is he just kind of disowns him. Part of what happens while he's in the locker room is he discovers that he's attracted to some of the other football players. This is all backstory. And in a, in a game, actually, because he's new to the, new to the sport, is throws himself headlong into the way of a vicious tackle coming at the object of his affection and is paralyzed and ends up in a wheelchair. So the play really starts there with this young man who has been just hit with the double whammy of discovering that he's gay and discovering that he can't walk and how it is he's going to move forward in life. And that's basically the story. However, it, the, the format of it is thrilling. It's, it's told in four quarters, like a football game, on a football field with football players and modern dancers who kind of hopefully will sort of effortlessly morph from one to the other. A big casting challenge. Big directing challenge, too. Big directing challenge. We've got Mr. John Tracy who last directed Tree for us, directing this one. And he's really, really good at cross, cross-discipline performances, really good at working with movement and with uh, music, with drumming, because there'll be a drum corps like you would see at a football game. And so we're super excited. It's interesting that it requires a handicapped actor. And we've cast a really, really wonderful young L.A actor uh, named Christopher Thornton in the role who's been in a bunch of films and is a very experienced actor. But there also is another version of the Mike character. There's a healthy version. And the two of them actually have a, a dialogue between them, which is very interesting. City of Angels, your next big show. I've seen that in New York, and I saw a version out here. You're basically keeping to the idea of a black and white half stage and a color half stage? I'm not sure we're going to do it quite that linearly. We may do it with light and projections where we transform the existing set to color or black and white with a video projection and with lighting. We are definitely interested in playing with the tear in the fabric between the reality of the screenwriters wrestle with Hollywood and the 
characters in his screenplay that are generally done in black and white. It's a story about a young novelist who's uh, brought out to Hollywood to make his bestseller into a movie, and he runs straight into the Sodom and Gomorrah of Hollywood and the corruption of the uh, producers and the disrespect that Hollywood has for the writer. The question is, how far will this young man sell out in order to become a success? And it's a morality tale. One of the fun things about it, as Richard points out, is that the characters in the screenplay are in the play. And there's scenes where he's typing madly away, and then they're acting, the black and white world, they're acting as he's writing, and then he gets disgusted with what he's written and rips the paper out of the typewriter, whereupon they all rewind and then redo the scene according to the new dialogue. So it's just great fun. And then, of course, he can't really fully control his creations. It takes place in the world of crime noir. So it's kind of like the Maltese Falcon or Chinatown. And there's a detective, a Bogart-type Jack Nicholson detective, who's, of course, the tough, jaded, sardonic figure. His name in the, in the screenplay is Stone, and the screenwriter's name is Stein. And they have a, the best, I think, my favorite number the in, the, in the duet at the end of Act One. It's called You're Nothing Without Me. And, of course, the playwright wants the character to do the dialogue as written. And he says, you're nothing without me. You wouldn't exist if I hadn't created you. And, of course, the detective actually feels the same way. If it weren't for his existence as a brilliant detective, this writer would never have become famous. So it's just fabulous. It's fabulous sort of world of, of, of motion picture and, the, and a, a kind of a wonderful satire of how creativity can be corrupted about the authenticity of a writer's impulses. And a 40s-style jazz score by uh, Cy Coleman. Cy Coleman, yes, yes. Wonderful, wonderful score. The story is narrated by a quartet of jazz singers who are a little uh, Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross meets the Andrews sisters in terms of the harmonic style. The jazz harmonics of the quartet are truly delicious. The only problem with the show, and it was a terrible ending. Well, I'm going to fix that. How do you fix a terrible ending? I'm not sure to... how, but I'm going to. Do you have permission to change? Well, the terrible ending is pretty much in action. There isn't a lot of dialogue in it. I want to do something, and I haven't quite figured out what yet, that has to do with the way he has control of that typewriter. If he can somehow undo the entire world of the film and walk away in a more, a more viable, dramatic way. Partly, that's what the effort, the reason to do the play is about. So I'm sure you'll be there next time we talk. You'll be there to tell me if I've succeeded. The show I want to finish up with is uh, the show that comes before City of Angels, which is Red Velvet, directed by the great Margot Hall, which uh, is about a black man playing Othello in London in 1833 and comes out of the Tricycle Theater in London. I've noticed that every year you have one or two shows that focus in on race relations. And it seems that this is something that 
has to be there. You have to focus in on making sure that you're covering races and genders, right? Well, I think we have to try, you know. We try to get a representative number of women playwrights and minority playwrights, and we, I'm always looking for a show which sort of reflects the struggles that are going on in our culture now. And although this is a historic drama, I'm sure it will resonate with many people in today's world. Based on a true story, there was a black actor in London that did go on when Edmund Keane, the great British actor, had a heart attack, and they were looking for somebody to replace him. And the company manager's friend was playing out in the hinterlands, and he knew that he knew Othello. It takes place actually at a time when there was a lot of demonstration, a lot of protest about the emancipation of slaves in England, which happened very shortly thereafter. So it's a very thick stew of cultural conflict and change happening in London in which the place takes place. Well, Margot Hall is one of the Bay Area's best actors. How'd you get her to direct? Well, she's also a very fine director, and she's worked for us before as a director. We did a play about six or five years ago called The Story that was about that black reporter at the Times that fabricated a story. And this is a play that spun out of that and Margot directed it. Of course, she did a fabulous job. So, But she's not acting in this. She's not acting in this one, no. Although we'll get her back on the stage. We had her on the stage a couple of years ago in the mo- mother effer with the hat. And she was great in that. Well, she's a wonderful actress. I love seeing her. Bill English, what's on tap that's new and exciting for... SF Playhouse before we end this. Anything coming up? Any changes? Anything new? Well, we're taking ideation to New York. You know, like I said, we've expanded the sandbox. We have a couple of great shows, three shows in the sandbox. I'm encouraging people who are already subscribers to come to the sandbox shows because they're they're kind of innovative and challenging and and different. And we're branching out into some new venues for the sandbox too, up to the roof and over to Creative Children's Creativity Museum. That was Bill English, Artistic Director of San Francisco Playhouse. To learn more about San Francisco Playhouse, you can go to their website, sfplayhouse.org. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.